Well, good morning. If you want to grab your Bibles, go ahead and do that. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a hardback black one somewhere around you. Uh, take that. If you don't own one, uh, that's our gift to you. I, I joke often that if you want a nicer one, uh, the Lost and Found is out here by Connection Central. There's some beautiful leather-bound Bibles there uh, that you could grab a hold of if you'd like. Now, um, we're going to start uh, today a three-week series on marriage, and so uh, I want to kind of just give you my outline, uh, and then from, not just for today, but for the three weeks, and, and then we'll dive into today. Uh, so today I've got two things that I want to accomplish. One, uh, I want to show you from the Word of God that humankind has been designed by God for deep companionship with other humans. Right, And so that's the first thing. And then I want to move and, and I want us to get a view of marriage that's God's view of marriage. And so uh, if I could simplify that, I want to show us that we have a deep need for companionship. And then I want to do my best to define marriage for us in a way that's helpful. Then next week, we're going to talk about sex. You don't need to be nervous about that. You don't need to kind of shield your children. Nothing graphic. I'm not showing videos. I, I just want to talk about God's purpose and design. Sex was God's idea. Like he came up with that. It's a gift from him to us that is to be enjoyed within the parameters for our safety that he created it for. So we're going to talk about that second week. And then week three, we're going to talk about what I just call the long game. And, and what I mean by the long game is if we could get in our mind's eye being um, 75, 80 years old, surrounded by grandchildren and great-grandchildren and kind of enjoy being patriarchs and matriarchs and see the fruit of decades of faithfulness all uh, around us. I want to kind of start with that and then kind of reverse engineer and go, okay, what do we need to be doing now that moves us in that direction rather than the opposite direction? So um, with that said, let me just acknowledge very quickly from the front, I know I'm going to be touching on some extremely sensitive areas of our human experience. Right? I, I just know that, so I'm going to do my best to do that gently and compassionately, but honestly for our own good. Um, several years ago, in fact, two years ago, precisely, um, I started doing some research on marriage, and, and this is what I found. I just went to uh, Amazon.com, and, and I, I pulled up the search bar, and, and I typed in marriage in the search bar and hit go. And, and what I found is that when I hit go, there were 151,000 books on marriage two years ago. So add 40,000 to that, right? Uh, and then there were 27,000 books on dating, almost 12,000 books on attraction. What's a book on attraction? Like chapter one, is she pretty? <laughs> chapter two, you're attracted then, right? I, I don't understand, but whatever. And, and then there were 190,000 books on sex. Now, one of, the things, one of the things that Amazon does that's a bit different than maybe other sites is other sites throw up ads based on your personal profile. Basically, um, the internet is tracking your cookies. So I'll use this example. If you wanted to get like a TRX performance trainer and you kind of Googled that and you found one, then the next time you go to another website, you know what's going to be there in the banner? TRX workout stuff, right? Uh, and, and so this is, this is the man's way of keeping an eye on you. Now, what Amazon does that's a bit different is it lets companies and organizations purchase base space based on what you searched. And so when I searched that night, two years ago, in, in Amazon, that marriage, boom, the banners were this. See, here, I, I just wrote them up aggressive divorce. That was one of the links I could click on or divorce help for women. And so as I started to dig, here's what's happening. First of all, it's predatory in its nature. So a marriage has entered into difficult space. And so someone's gone and they've typed in, man, I need some help for my marriage, marriage book, search. And what comes up? Aggressive divorce, right? And, and then to nuance it even more, they know that it's usually women, not always, but usually women fighting the fight to hold their marriage together. And so there's for women a special, maybe, maybe the aggressive divorce is there for the man, but then you've got the sweet kind of pretty ad for, we, we, we specialize in helping women get divorced. And, and so here, here, this and about a thousand other things lead me to this conclusion. We deeply and desperately want intimate, deep companionship with another and we stink at it. And we stink at it. We're not quite sure how to do it. Like, how do you write 190,000 books, not chapters, books on sex? 
At any rate, 151,000 books on marriage. Right? These, are, these are not books that are going back to the 17th century. And these are all pretty modern works. Like what in the world has happened to us that, that we've lost sight of what God has designed as good and given to us as a gift of grace? So as we enter the fray, let me lay in front of you some things that I know. I know we're all over the map in here, right? I know some of you are single, and you're like, oh, great, a sermon series on marriage. <laughs> okay, well, here's the, if you're single, praise God that you're single, but a lot of what we'll talk about uh, in this series has a lot to do with kind of the deep need that humankind has to connect with one another, and so there'll be things for you in that. And then there are those of us, and we're, in our, we're married, and we're flourishing. Like, we love our spouse. We've been married for like a month, and it's going just the way we... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Everybody does that. Give me a second to get to the other extreme. Or you've been married for a long time, and you, by the grace of God, have gone through the peaks and the valleys, and you've come out the other side being more committed to your spouse, more in love with your spouse, more um, as a legitimate partner in the call that God has for you with your spouse than ever before. Right? And, and so I know that you're, you're in here. You, your marriage is flourishing. You feel alive in it. You feel safe in it. You feel known in it. Uh, and it's a beautiful gift of God's grace. And that's some of us in here. So some of us are single. Some of us are really flourishing. And some of us are floundering, man. Um, some of us, we got married and we're like, oh my gosh, is this it? That, that we had so much hope put into what this was going to accomplish that we got into it and we're just so disappointed but we can't say anything to anybody about that disappointment how's it going man i am totally let down i mean my whole life i've been thinking this was going to do this or that and now i'm married and man i i feel like there's been a bait and switch here like i like oh gosh is this my life now and and then others there there's been serious betrayal there have been events, cataclysmic events that have led to heartbrokenness, the, the feeling that, that the spouse can't be trusted, that this feeling of fear of how you might be hurt or wounded. Again, in fact, many of you have come in here at a tipping point, just not knowing how much longer you can hang in there or whether you should hang in there. And my hope is that we, as we dive into this, that, that I might be able to encourage you um, to see things, maybe the way the Lord sees them, and navigate really with the lenses of what the Bible says marriage is as a way that guides you and drives you forward, right? Uh, and then lastly, I, I've said this um, for really, I, I've been your pastor 15 years now this fall, and, I, and I've said this from very early on in my time here, um, that the first six, seven years of my marriage were awful, um, whenever I say that and Lauren's in the room, I love it because everybody who knows us kind of looks to see how Lauren's going to respond <laughs> in, in that moment. And here's what she does. She's always like, yeah, yeah, they were. And, and I mean like bad, bad. I mean like I would lay in my bed at night and think, oh my God, is this the rest of my life? Surely this isn't the rest of my life. And, and she was in bed next to me, not going, gosh, I'm so glad I did this, right? But, but feeling some of the very same things we were feeling, trapped unable to get out of one another's way, unable to figure this thing out, lost, and, and not really knowing what to do. And, and so I, I say that because I can use my own story, I hope, as a way to lay before you hope regardless of where your marriage is today. I could introduce you not just to my own wife, but hundreds of couples here that have seen God work miraculously in their marriage to reconcile, to restore, to bring about the heart's desire of the man and the woman as they try to navigate a very beautiful but difficult and complex space. And so with those things said, remember what I want to do today. I want to show you that humankind is desperate for deep companionship, and that's rooted in creation and then I want to talk about how we should think about and define marriage in a way that, that will help us, I think, kind of navigate the highs and lows of living with another person that's sinful. So let's look at Genesis 2, starting in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. 
Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, let's chat because I know church baggage. All right, this word helper in the Hebrew is the same word that's applied to God frequently throughout the Old Testament. So this is not, I will make him a servant. This is not, oh man, I've given him this big task. Who's going to make him a sandwich or who's going to wash that tunic? Or that's not what's happening in this text. This word helper is applied to God who will come alongside and bolster up and strengthen is what's happening here. There's not subservient roles being woven into this text. There is helpmate, partner, the one who will come alongside and walk with. It's a side rant. Back to it, 19. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman or woe I mean, because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You see like a really kind of stunning thing occur in the creation narrative where everything to this point has been either good or very good and then God sees the man and says it's not good for man to be alone and he doesn't do this cuz he checked in with Adam. Right? He didn't come have this conversation with Adam like, "Hey, what do you think? How's that golden retriever treating you?" You know, man's best friend, you doing well? You lonely? Do you feel like you need something um, that's compatible with you? Are you cool? God, knowing the plans that he had, knowing what he was up to in regards both the human flourishing and the glory of his name, sees this isn't good because up until this point in the creation narrative, everything has something compatible that actually completes it. And so I'll show you what I mean here. The skies without the sun, moon, and stars, even the birds are incomplete. The sea without the fish and the other teeming creatures are seen as incomplete. And without mankind and land animals, the earth is incomplete. And so God sees Adam and he says, this is not good. And, and then you get, this, you get this really kind of strange, uh, I think he's trying to prove a point to um, Adam. That's conjecture. It's not in the text. But then all the animals start to come before Adam and he's naming them. And, and it, it, if we could get into the, the rhythm of kind of the Hebrew versus the, the English, he, you, you got in this moment where he's like, not like me, not like me, not like me. That's really cool, but it's not like me. Not like me, not like me, not like me. He goes to sleep. He wakes up. There's the woman. He says, like me. You are like me. This is like me. Oh my gosh, you have thumbs. This is amazing. <laughs> right? And, and now there's a compatible partner. Now, you and I, according to the creation narrative, have been designed by God for deep, intimate companionship. This text is dealing with kind of marriage and and marriage is kind of the foundation by which discipleship and human flourishing occurs. That can't be argued, all right? The family unit is the seed by which humanity grows into something beautiful. You, You destroy the family, you destroy the beauty of humanity very quickly, and, and so although this is going to introduce Eve as the solution to this problem, throughout the scriptures you see a call towards community, a call towards companionship. We've been hardwired to know others in a deep and intimate way. When I'm using intimate there, I'm not talking about sexual. I'm talking about known and being fully known. We crave that. We want that. And the issue of our day is we live in a society that's thin, where you've got a thousand Facebook friends and you don't know anybody. And you know everybody without knowing anyone. It's a paradox that's never really occurred before. It's a scary day in which you and I live. We have to have 
a companion. We're hungry for it. We're lonely when we don't have it. And, and you can see this in a couple. Like I, I think one of the places you see this clearly um, that, that might make you giggle is if you ever saw the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks. Do you remember this movie? Uh, and so he's stuck on this island for, I think, about a decade, and he's trying to light fire, and, and he cuts his hand, and he freaks out. I mean, you don't do that. You're more sanctified than that. But he hurt himself, and he freaks out, and he slaps this Wilson volleyball, and, and the blood from his hand form what appears to be a, a face on the volleyball, and Wilson becomes Tom Hanks' character's best friend for the decade that he's on the island. And, and then in this, this brilliant cinematography, this kind of manipulative sense of our souls. What, what they do is, is Tom escapes the island on this raft and he goes through a storm and Wilson, who's been tied with VHS tape, I think, to a, a stick, he, he falls off into the water. And I don't know if you caught this, but there's no music in the movie until Wilson hits the water. And then Wilson hits the water and some strings start up and, and Tom Hanks like, Wilson! And then he tries and he thinks about untethering himself from his life raft to save a volleyball. And man, if you've got a soul, you might have even teared up a little bit as he's freaking out about Wilson. But it's a volleyball. But the drive to be known to speak, to interact, and to know intimately is so powerful that a man stuck on an island ends up with a best friend that's a volleyball. Now, because of the thinness of our day, he, here's one of the big ways that we get robbed from companionship. Um, without, with, with our culture kind of pressing us to always be put together and always have all the answers and always, we, we, we early on start to fear rejection, fear being found out. And so what you do, most people, in fact, I think everybody does this, is you kind of project strength so that you won't be rejected. All right, so you're like, I'm great, I'm doing fine, grades are great, relationships great, I'm not afraid, I'm not anxious, I'm not nervous, I don't feel like I'm going to get outed as a, a failure at any moment. So you're going to project this image as I'm together, I'm happy, things are going great, I don't worry about much, I'm at peace, God and I are cool, all my friends and I are great. And you project this image, and it's not true, and you become a slave to the image. And the image of strength without vulnerability will always drive you into isolation and loneliness. So the more you project that you're awesome and that everything in your life is awesome and you're not afraid of anything, you're not anxious about anything, and you don't have any worries, the more you enslave yourself to isolation and loneliness. It's one of the great tragedies of our day that the very way to get into deep, intimate companionship is the one thing we simply cannot allow ourselves to be vulnerable. So, so I want you to think like this. Your human. Yeah, that, you're a human. You know what humans do? They realize they're fragile. They tend to get anxious. They tend to get nervous. They tend to get afraid. They tend to fail. This is what humans, all humans, you have never met a human being that doesn't fail. You have never met a human being that doesn't get scared. You have never met a human being that is not in specific areas of their lives weak and afraid. You and I are in a culture where that's unacceptable and the projection of strength is the norm. And so of course we can't get into the companionship God has for us. Of course we can't walk in intimate relationships. And I'm not just talking about marriage right now. I'm even just talking about deep friendships. Because the more you can't be weak, the more you isolate yourself and self-determine loneliness for your soul. It's such a shame because vulnerability is the one thing that actually ushers in this stuff. Um, I don't know if you saw, uh, Brene Brown did a TED Talk. I think like 60 jillion people have watched it. Um, and at the 10-minute mark of her TED Talk, she's just brilliant, um, brilliant, just a great mind. And at the 10-minute mark, she starts to kind of be very vulnerable about her own fears, about her own you know, failures. And, and what you saw collectively, it, it hit a string apparently because of the number of views 
But what you almost felt in the audience that was live was this, okay, thank God, her too. So we we have this tendency to kind of create um, superhuman people that we see and we're like, oh man, they don't struggle. They don't, they're amazing. And the reality is we're all human beings. And that comes with a set of experiences that is universally true. We all get afraid of stuff. We all fail. We all tend to get anxious. We all, and when you let people in to that, real companionship is possible. And the more you feel like you have to manage that, the more you enslave yourself to a faux image that needs to be managed because it's not actually who you are. You tracking with me? Okay. But on this, what we're talking about here um, is now um, marriage and, and how this idea of the need for deep, intimate companionship plays out in the marriage. And so here, here's what I want to do. I want to talk about the way I think marriage tends to be viewed in our day and age versus kind of then um, how God has built marriage uh, to, to work. And so uh, I think that, that by and large, uh, our consumerism has put on our eyes the lenses of consumerism, even as we think about marriage. Uh, and so in a day and age, and I keep saying this because I want you to be so aware of it because I think the rest of the world, when you're not in here, is trying to disciple you down this path that I'm trying to do my best to help us, right? We live in a day and age where the rights of the individual are ultimate so that what you want is what you must have and ultimate freedom and happiness. It can only be found in your individual desires being fulfilled, Humankind has never thought like that. This is new. This is a new form of idolatry that's absolutely gutting our ability for relationships and for flourishing. So we tend to view marriage through the lenses of consumerism, right? Um, We live in a day and age where individual happiness is the ultimate value, so marriage becomes primarily an experience of romantic fulfillment, right? Marriage in our day and age is primarily about romantic fulfillment, right? It's not about partnering for something. It's not about coming together to make something beautiful. It's just about romantic fulfillment, right? Self is at the heart of marriage through these lenses. It sees the individual as supreme. Now think about the breakdown that we've already got going into the marriage. If the husband sees himself supreme and the wife sees herself as supreme and you put two supreme rulers in the same house, historically that starts wars, right? And so when you see marriage through the lenses of what I want is supreme and your spouse sees the marriage through the lenses of what I want is supreme, you're already in a bad way. The mantra of marriage via consumerism is you adjust to me or I'm out. You adjust to me or I'm out. And it's driven by feelings and passion and has no room for duty or promises. So you'll oftentimes hear people say, I fell out of love. That's this version of marriage. That's this version of marriage. And men, if you have said that or you believe that, I promise you, I'm, I'm trying my best to not be offensive except for where the truth might actually offend. So what you've just said is, I have no room for duty. I have no room for the promises I made to keep. I don't feel anymore. I don't have emotion anymore. And so I'm out as though love were some sort of ethereal feeling and, and not thicker than that, Right? And so I want to use this definition for our series together. Um, I started to try to work on one, and then um, I realized Tim Keller had one, and, and, and he's just smarter and better and older and wiser. He's like Yoda for you Star Wars nerds. Um, and, and so here's what Keller said. Keller said, marriage is a lifelong monogamous relationship between a man and a woman. And then he begins to unpack the purpose. According to the Bible, God devised marriage to reflect the saving love for us in Christ. So I want to stop and talk about that. Um, If you watch little boys and little girls, I I usually talk about this at weddings. Um, They grow up not really interested in one another, but interested in their own kind. So um, my youngest daughter's birthday is tomorrow. We celebrated her birthday with her friends on Saturday. And so when Nora gave me the list of friends that she wanted to her party, you know that what was on it? Ten seven-year-old girls. That's what was on. It wasn't like, and Braden, right? That wasn't on there. It was 10 seven-year-old girls. And so we had 10 seven-year-old girls over to our house. And my son right now 
even at 11. They're just gross, right? No, thank you. Just give me the guys. But there is a day coming, a day I call the day of epiphany. (laughs) And on the day of epiphany, you're like, no, no, no. Yes, please, right? And and then all of that turns, and you're like, gross, cooties, no thank you. I need one of those, and you will sell out your guys so quickly, right? Like Jennifer Aniston movies, that's ridiculous. What do you want to see at Jennifer Aniston? Let's go see that movie, right? Can't go tonight, right? I mean, you will just so sell out your crew after the day of Epiphany, and it's this moving towards, and what Tim is alluding to is something that's taught in Ephesians chapter 5. That God, longing to paint on the canvas of creation, his love for us, his pursuit of us, his zeal after us, puts it into the heart of the man to pursue the woman. And if you're like, well, I mean, I appreciate what you're saying, but I think it's testosterone doing that. And I would totally agree with you. I would tell you there's a God behind the testosterone. There's a God behind the biology. The biology does not disprove God, it actually proves that there's a God behind it. And so after this day of epiphany, we pursue. And in that pursuit, every time you see a man pursue a woman, every time you you see a wedding, you need to be reminded that what we're witnessing is a picture of God's romantic pursuit of us. And if you're a man and you're like, ah, it just kind of bothers me to think about God romantically pursuing me. Okay, let's, let's chat for a second in all your masculinity. Um, there's enough in the Bible to offend everyone. So if women have to deal with being sons of God, you have to deal with being the bride of Christ. All right. So this is just enough in the Bible to offend all of us. And so um, he says, not only is that true, that marriage is there to reflect the saving love for us in Christ, but it's also there to refine our character. And all the married people said, amen. Yeah. And It also is there to create stable human community for the birth and nurture of children and to accomplish all of this by bringing the complementarity sexes into an enduring whole life union. This is the definition we'll be working off of. So what Keller's talking about here is really marriage as covenant. So earlier we talked about marriage as consumerism, right? That, that's driven by the individual self. Its mantra is you adjust to me and there's no place in that for duty or promise because its purpose is romantic fulfillment. Well, in covenant marriage, things are the exact opposite and not, not purely opposite, but let's talk about it. Uh, the heart of biblical marriage sees God as supreme, not the individual self as supreme, but God himself as supreme. The mantra is we adjust to God together. We adjust, it's not you adjust to me, it's we adjust to God together. And when all said and done, it doesn't just lean on duty and promise, but when God is supreme and not the individual or even the family itself, that truly frees you up to live a life where both promise and passion exist and where both feelings and fulfillment come into line with one another. So I've been with Lauren for 20 years, been married for 18, and here's what I can tell you. I think my wife is a physically stunning woman. I mean, I still can't believe this has happened. I'm not kidding. I mean, I'm like gangly and awkward. I've only gotten less of those things as I've gotten older, right? So in in one of my kind of high watermark moments of being gangly and awkward, this stunningly beautiful woman said she would marry me. And she did. Like it wasn't a joke. You know, she said, yeah. And I was like, I hope she shows. She showed and she came. I thought the doors would open. It'd just be my dad going, sorry, bro. But it didn't. She like came down and we've been married. And here's what I can tell you is as much as I find her physically stunning, watching her come alongside of me to serve the Lord is easily one of the more sexy things she does. I know we don't tend to have those categories like godliness equals sexiness, but godliness is sexy to godly people. So to watch her, so like here, here, let me give you a recent example. My son does this thing. I'm just gonna leave it at that. And, and he did it, and like when he does that thing he does, like, I, like it, it gets on my nerves. Like it bothers me, like deeply, which probably says more about me than him, but I, it does something bad to daddy's soul. <laughs> but to watch Lauren just walk over there and get on her knee and just go, hey buddy, so what, what's going on? Are you, are you angry or are you sad? I don't know. Already a man, right? Um, so then my wife will follow it up with this. Does, 
Does it make you want to break something or does it make you want to cry? Makes me want to break something. Okay, that's anger. That feeling of wanting to break, that, that's anger. So let's talk about why you're angry. And, what, and then just to watch her navigate this way, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's unbelievable. I want to mouth kiss you. <laughs> is that too far? I don't, is, where's an elder? I need an elder to give me a head nod. Maybe not in here. I'm safe. Right? So this is what happens. Like I watch her live a godly life and there's commitment and duty and passion. Right? And this is how it works. She's come alongside of me. I've come alongside of her and we've been given this mission by God. Make much of Jesus. Make God be supreme and create an environment in which children might flourish and grow into the fullness of what God has for them in Christ. That's our task. That's our goal. And we're partnering to see it accomplished. It's not, well... Got this task to do, so let me do it. Ugh, you're really kind of gross to me, but I'm going to make... It's not what's happening, right? There's this thing that happens to our souls being knit together as one as we seek to serve and make much of Jesus. So the best way I think I can explain this to you is via um, language around covenant. Um, there's this moment in every wedding um, where you have the exchanging of vows, and what happens in that moment is, is the bride and groom, they turn and face one another. And then before God and their community, they begin to exchange vows. They begin to make promises with one another. And the language is always covenantal. For better or for worse. Richer or poorer. In sickness or in health. Till death do us part. That's covenantal language. That's I'm not going anywhere. Imagine how mortified you would be if you went to a wedding and, and the vows were consumeristic and contractual. You imagine if you're, you're in the wedding, you, you wore your wedding clothes, you found them in the closet and put them on, and now you're sitting out there and they turn and face one another and the wife says, um, you, you will need to make over 60000 a year. And he responds with, you're going to have to stay the same weight. <laughs> oh, that was too real? Y'all want me to lie? Y'all want to lie? Are you in the wrong place? Uh, and, then, and then he counters with this and she counters with that. Let, let me tell you, I'm up, I'm getting my gift, and I'm out. You will not fund your second shot at singleness with my microwave I bought you, all right? I'm going to go eBay that mug, take that money back. Because you can see in that moment, this isn't happening. There's too many outs. But covenant love doesn't work that way. Covenant love says, I'm not going anywhere. Think about how crazy it is that on your wedding day, you said out loud, this could go bad. For better or for worse, I'm in. Wait, what? For worse? Haven't you guys got to the bottom of that yet? Why would you say yes to marriage if for worse was a possibility? But you say it out loud. It's this crazy moment of covenant promise. I'm not going anywhere. That's covenant marriage. That's God's view of marriage. Partnering together to glorify God. Serving one another. Adjusting to one another before God. For the flourishing of your home, the flourishing of your children, the flourishing of your neighborhoods, towns, cities, countries, world. That's God's big plan. And if you're like, that's huge. It's not huge. I've got a wife and three kids. That's where I'm going to work, right? I'm not working like, I've got to really do something about the state. No, I don't. I really don't. What are we going to do about America? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to really try to love my wife as best I can, like Christ loved the church. I'm going to create this environment where my children might flourish and grow, and I'm going to preach the word to the church that he's called me to as my vocation. And that's what it means to fulfill God's calling in my life. Right? So this isn't huge. This is be where you are. Be present. Do these things that, that God has called you to. Now, I need to put a little asterisk on this. Okay? So covenant, I'm not going anywhere. If you are in a marriage that is abusive, violent, emotionally manipulative, and you're anxious for your safety, I am not telling you to stay and I am not giving your very broken husband permission to continue to bully you, scare you, emotionally manipulate you, or make you feel unsafe. 
And, and husbands, I'm not trying to shame you. You are a broken soul in desperate need of help. You are battering and bullying a daughter of the king of the universe. And if you think there will be no repercussion for that, then you are a fool. Not to mention the generational carnage you are unleashing in your depravity. Nor did I say, ladies, right, run out now and get a divorce lawyer. I didn't say that. Let, let's create some space for you. Let's get you into safety and we can work on your marriage where you don't have to worry about getting beat up or bullied. I think the church has to start adding this in this conversation. One in three women live in this kind of environment according to the recent data, which means there's quite a few of you in the room. I, I will not give your husband permission to use the Bible to bully you. It's not what God intends. It's not what he has. And so if that's you, man, we, we have spent a year now being trained and getting ready to kind of help in these spaces. And so if you want to loop us in, and I know that in and of itself is terrifying. You want to loop us in, we're more than willing to come alongside of you and walk with you. Just know that when I'm saying this things, these things, it is not God's heart for you to stay in a place where you feel unsafe, bullied, manipulated, and abused. Now, I also want to add this caveat. Where men tend to use their size and strength to bully, manipulate, and abuse, women tend to use more emotional tactics, more manipulative tactics. So this is certainly not a one-way street, although the majority of abuse is perpetrated by men on women. There are plenty of cases where that road has actually gone the opposite way, and it's women abusing their husbands. Not physically, rarely physically. But, but here's something that, that I realized years ago in my own marriage. Like because of the nature of what I do, it is not uncommon for me to be put on blast by some guy who doesn't like what I just said, some man or woman that thinks I'm an idiot, and, and I'll just get these lengthy, crazy emails where I hope you die. And, I, and, and man, you want to send me that, I'll literally respond to you by, I'm far worse than what you're describing, and don't worry, I will die one day and I'll send it to you and we can just move forward. So, and what I mean by that is this. I've just, over the course of 27 years, developed some really, really thick skin to critique and attack from people who are coming from broken spaces. I wanna learn from my critics as best I can and where it's sane and reasonable. I wanna take that and learn. But the world sometimes is not sane and reasonable and, and I've just learned, you're gonna, I don't know what you could say that would penetrate um, my thick skin and really send me into a tailspin, but you know who can crush me with a sentence? My wife. So you like put me on blast, send me, you know, a nine page document of just how terrible of a human being I am. And I'm going to have lunch and get a cup of coffee in the afternoon, finish my work day. And I'm going to go to sleep and I probably won't think about your email again. I'll just lay that before the Lord. If there's nothing true in it, uh, I'm just going to move on with life and sleep well. My wife can say a sentence that can undo me for weeks. Unbelievable amount of power in the words of a woman. I mean, the Bible says some crazy things about men who live with women who kind of always are tearing them down. You know, the Bible says, I'm not making this. The Bible says it's better for a man to die in the desert than to live with a contemptuous woman. <laughs> Ladies, that's God saying that. Coming to your husband going, all right, man, just head out into the desert. Want you to get some water? No, it's going to be better. Don't get any water. Just go. Am I going to die out there? Yeah, it's going to be slow. Um, probably before you die, a vulture will probably start to eat your flesh. But listen, it's better than where you are, bro. Get out. Just go. Go. You'll be home soon. It'll all be over. Just get out into the desert, right? It equates living with a contemptuous woman to water torture, like a dripping faucet. And, and so again, I'm not saying if you're in such a toxic relationship that the emotional, physical, spiritual damage occurring in that marriage should be something you just sit in and I guess this is what God has for me. No, no, I'm saying that to get help, sometimes you gotta get some space. To get help, sometimes you've gotta get some space. So I'm not teaching on covenant so that you might stay in an abusive relationship. 
I'm teaching on covenant because there are seasons of difficulty where our impulse is to see only ourselves. And we might in a moment say something foolish or we might in a moment freak out. We might, but these things are few and far between and they're not a pattern and they're not a habit. And so I'm leaning into covenant because every marriage will go through some dry seasons or some just ordinary seasons. And and so uh, I need to just lay before you, we stay and push through those seasons. We don't bail on those seasons. We don't fall out of love because we think love is also a decision of the will. We think love has to do also with promise and duty as much as it has to do with feelings and passion. But I don't want to give permission for abusive men to abuse and manipulative women to twist the knife all the more in their husband's spirits. I want to encourage you to let us help whether that's coming to our recovery groups that are built around this stuff or coming up and being prayed for and connecting with one of our biblical counselors, just don't stay in the dark with where you are. That's that projection of strength that robs you of genuine companionship and intimacy, the thing God's trying to usher you into, right? Now, if you pay attention to the Bible, there's covenants everywhere. Covenants between men, covenants between nations, covenants between families. And what makes the marriage covenant so spectacular to look at is you have a covenant being made between God and the couple and between the couple and the couple in front of their community. So there's this promise to one another that's rooted in their relationship with God where the community of faith is holding them accountable to those vows that they made to one another before God. So it's this beautiful moment where community, divine presence, and commitment to one another wrapped in passion happens in a marriage, in a wedding. And it's this beautiful reality that we get to work through and in and at all the days of our lives. And so I want to chat with you about um, how I want us to think moving forward. Here's the first. I I think on this topic, the temptation is always to kind of hope that your spouse is listening. Look look right at me. I'm going to try to serve you. You make a terrible Holy Spirit. You want to undo anything God has been doing in the heart of your spouse, get in the car after that and go, hope you heard what Pastor Chandler said. (laughs) Men and women do not change via the nagging and griping of their spouses. They might try to conform the best they can to keep the peace, but they won't be transformed. Only the Spirit of God can do that. So what you need to do is prayerfully Ask the Spirit of God to engage, to be gracious and gentle and make your request be known. I'm not saying you just have to be silent and hope things work out. I'm saying there's a way to approach it that's helpful and there's a way to approach it that's not helpful. I I think you should be an expert in the strengths of your spouse more than you are an expert in their weaknesses. Like if I gave you five minutes right now, what, what could you name more of? Where they're weak and you wish they'd get better or where they're strong and you're so grateful that God gave them to you? You become an expert in the strengths of your spouse. You'll be surprised at at how just, and this is going to be a radical idea. You might not have even thought of this is crazy. Listen, then you should tell them. (laughs) You should be able to say, hey, I love this about you, and I just can't see how that's going to lead to a fight. Like if you pull your husband aside today, like, man, listen, when you do these things, I'm just so grateful, and so I just love how you bring this to the, like, he's not going to be like, are you serious right now? That, like, that's just not going to happen, <laughs> right? And if you pull your wife aside and, and say, hey, I, I love this about when you do this, and, you, and listen, you know your relationship. If it's so toxic and broken that even that can lead to a fight, and I've seen it, right, where you're like, hey, I just noticed this about you, sweetheart. Like, when you do this, I just can't tell you the difference that makes. Oh, is that all I do? Is that all you've ever seen? You're like, oh, gosh, okay, Chandler, right? No, no, so maybe you just... <laughs> Coach it by adding a simple one of the things, right? You navigate your environment with wisdom, but be an expert in the strength of your spouse, and you should share that. So throughout this series, whether it's the idea of covenant and consumption, whether it's sex or the long game, you need to worry about you and not them. The second thing I want to just lay before you as we start to wrap up our time together today. The, the category I didn't address up front, which is actually a pretty frequent happening, is that one of the spouses 
will think the relationship is flourishing and the other one will think it's floundering. So, so I want to just be bold enough to say this. Look at me. If your spouse thinks you need counseling, you need counseling. One flesh, one, it's one marriage. That, that's what it is. It's not your marriage. It's one marriage. And so if, your other, if the other half of your body stopped working, you wouldn't be like, we're fine. Like, like that's not, it's not going to happen. You're one body. So husbands, if your wife has come and said, man, I'm struggling. I don't know how to navigate this. We need help. Your response cannot be, we're fine. Your wife just told you you're not fine. Or if your husband comes to you and going, I don't know how to navigate this. I'm trying, boo. I don't know what to do. We need to get somebody to help us. Ladies, your response can't be, I don't know what you're talking about. We're doing great. Listen, that's that projected strength that's going to destroy you. It will take from you the one thing you so desperately want. You want your spouse to fill it. They're not filling it. You refuse to be vulnerable about that, so you can't move past it into the space that God wants to usher you in. All because I don't want to see a counselor. We're not the kind of people that see counselors. Look at my Instagram feed. Good God, we're on dates all the time. <laughs> Listen, we've got to stop it. It's freaking madness. Step into the light. Step into the light. Lastly, as we wrap up our time today, laying this as a foundation for next week on sex and then the week after that, because what we're talking about, the idea of covenant versus consumption has a ton to do with how we approach sexual intimacy. If your spouse is there to be consumed, well, I mean, that, that's a problem. You shouldn't expect really beautiful, intimate, soul-knitting stuff. I can't preach that sermon. That's next week. You, you can't approach your spouse like they exist as some servant for your pleasure. So what I want you to do is I want you to spend just a couple of moments here. I'm going to just pray and, and give it to us. I, I want you to think about how you view your marriage. Do you view it through the lenses of covenant? We adjust to God. Or are you viewing your marriage through? Because I think a lot of difficulty is birthed by entering a marriage where your lens is you adjust to me. You fulfill me. You fix me. You make me happy. You put me back together. You solve all my daddy issues. You handle all my fears. You take on all my anxieties. You, take, you, you make this work. You complete me. You make me work. It's just a terrible way to enter a marriage relationship. Or are you seen through the lens of covenant? Now, let me, I don't want to I mean, be overly romantic. Most of the best marriages I see have a strong covenantal push and always have a little sprinkling of consumerism in them. Right? So, Lauren and I, anytime I'm preaching on stuff like this, I'm just bracing. And so, earlier this week, we had this huge fight, like this huge fight. It was like so insane. Uh, and, and what happened is I was, I, I was seen through this kind of individualistic lens, the last month for me has been crazy. I mean, the pace of it, it's just gone long, a lot of really long days, a lot of late nights, a lot of things that needed to get done, needed to get finished, needed to get tied off, needed to get pushed to the next person that needs to take um, something that's been created and move it down. Like a lot of that stuff's been going on. And in all of that, I, I was unable to see that Lauren was dealing with all the end of the school madness and that her days were long, and that they were complex, and that she was trying to get ready for this, and this, and this, and she had this, and this was going on. And I just couldn't see any of that. And I was just like, what? why are you not being more grateful for me? And why are you not kind of making life easier for me right now? Do you not see that I'm the one that's getting up at 5? You get to sleep until 6.30. Are you not seeing that I'm not getting home until 7.30 at night? Are you not seeing that I haven't had a day off in three weeks? How can you not see? And and I'm the one that couldn't see. Like an idiot. Again. <laughs> and so although I would say that God has restored in miraculous ways the first six, seven years of my marriage, and I am best friends with my wife. I, I say this, all I, I mean, I hate leaving and I love coming home. We laugh a lot, play a lot, rejoice in one another, understand each other's strengths and weaknesses, understand the partnership God has put us in for God's glory and our good. And every once in a while, we have one of those. 80% of the time, it's me. It is. I, I, listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to like, 
you know, manipulate with vulnerability. I'm saying 80% of the time I'm the one that gets caught up in my life and what I'm doing and what I'm trying to get done and, and I lose sight of, uh, of God's call in her life and what God has asked her to do and then I just start getting resentful and then I, I say something stupid and then we're off to the races. <laughs> I'm guessing you're giggling because you're with me, right? Oh, but what's the driver? Is it covenant? Or consumption? What's, what's driving your relationship? See, a fight like that every once in a while is great. A fight like that three times a week, that, that's trouble. Are you seeing your spouse through the lenses of covenant? Are you seeing them through the lenses of consumption? Is it you adjust to me or is it we adjust to him? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these men and women. I ask for our singles in here, your grace. I pray that if they desire that you would give them a spouse who loves you, give them a spouse who longs to partner with someone to make much of the name of Jesus. Pray that you would give them contentment in the stay, but that they would want that and not feel guilty about wanting that. That's a good gift, something to be desired. They would operate in contentment while they pursue, while they pray, while they long. I pray for our marriage, uh, our marriages that are flourishing in this place. I pray that you would encourage them today all the more in their flourishing. But I also want to pray for those who are floundering, those who are in difficult spots. Pray that today maybe some clarity would be given, a way of seeing might be introduced that helps them. Pray that they would grow in their expertise of the strengths of their spouse. I want to pray for any woman in this room that's nervous and afraid, that lives in fear that feels exhausted and weary and terrified. I pray space and freedom for them. I pray your peace over them. It's not meant to be like this. I pray that where they feel crazy, that you would give them eyes to see that they're not. And I pray for men that are just emotionally and spiritually battered. You'd give them the courage to... To be honest about, man, I don't know what to do here and I'm broken and lost and heartbroken and um, I feel like such a weak man because this is my story, but uh, I pray that they would walk into the light and find the healing and rescue that you've promised them. Pray that the Village Church be known for its marriages that have been rooted and established in you, that understand that there are partnerships fused together, filled with passion and duty, delight and commitment. Paint a picture of your pursuit of us in Jesus. And to create safe environments for human flourishing. Help us. We need you. It's for your beautiful name. Amen.